If you've got your Bibles this morning, let's turn back to Nehemiah one more time. Nehemiah chapter 11, and we're going to just look at the first two verses together, and uh, then probably a lot of verses in these last three chapters as we kind of work our way through it. But let's read together uh, these first two verses. I called this move-in day. They're getting ready now to uh, get settled into this city now that the temple and the walls and everything's in place. It says, now the leaders of the people stayed in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots for one out of ten to come and live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the other nine-tenths remained in their towns. The people praised all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. So some in Jerusalem, some scattered, and other places we're going to see that God had a plan in all of that. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that your Holy Spirit give us understanding of your word. Lord, you told us these stories in the Old Testament have been preserved and recorded not only because they are true, but also because you want us to learn something from these examples. Lord, help us to learn this morning. Help us to live this week in the power of your Holy Spirit, what we learn under the instruction of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. If you were to go to my parents' house, walk down in the basement to the left, there will be kind of what I called my apartment during my college years. Uh, but I was confined to the dungeon. I mean, I was, uh, they built me a room in the basement. And uh, so I had my own kind of, Toby was so glad to, after all those years, to get me out of a room with him. But if you were to walk into that room and walk into the closet that goes under the staircase there and uh, find your way probably through some boxes and things that have been stored in that closet uh, to the backside of that stairwell that was there before the basement was ever finished, on the wood there you would find little pictures of the house drawn in blue ink drawn by yours truly when I was about six years of age I think uh, a few years ago my mom uh, actually made her way that far back into that closet and took a picture and sent it to me so I found your artwork but I had drawn a picture of that house that we were living in and drawn a picture of my family I remember being so excited about move-in day and I remember being so excited to get to move into that house. Now, it is a modest house in most standards, at least in this nation. But for a six-year-old boy, it was a castle. I mean, it was a mansion. And I just remember thinking, wow, uh, this big house and, and, and the pictures that I drew there to illustrate how excited I was as a kid when we moved in to that house. But as you get older, you discover it's not just about a house. It's about a home. It's about a family. It's about memories. It's about your life as you experience it growing up and you look back on all the things that shaped you. And there again, I was reminded of what I shared this morning with Ryan and Andrea, that it's, it's not the facilities, it's not the structure, it's the people, it's the family. That's what makes all the difference. Move-in day. Living on mission. The walls are in place. The temple is there. Uh, they've been back and forth, sometimes too much in their homes, and 
and uh, sometimes perhaps they felt like their homes were neglected, but now it was time for them to, to settle in. The law is in place, the wall is in place, the temple is in place, but the people would be God's priority, and it's, it's always been that way. It's not about brick and mortar and structures and facilities, it's about people. That's what God cares about. We saw that last week. We're going to kind of continue in that theme as we close out this study. He did, God did not want them to have all of this in place so they could settle into the comforts of Zion and say, ah, we're home now. We're good. Now I know we love those moments when family's over and we enjoy a meal. We sit back and uh, you know, appreciate uh, fellowship with one another. We enjoy as a church being able to gather in facilities like this and just being able to enjoy one another's fellowship, one another's encouragement. But God, in fact, this more place us here so we would just be comfortable in Zion. In fact, this morning, I'm not trying, I'm, I'm not establishing as my goal in this message to see if I can make the people of God more comfortable. That should never be the goal of leadership. Let's see how comfortable we can make the people of God and the family of God. My desire is not that you would be comfortable, but the Holy Spirit would take His Word and do something in your life that might make you a little uncomfortable. That would get you out of your comfort zone and, and remind you that the reason when you came to know Christ, you weren't raptured out of here immediately is because God wanted you to be an influence in this world. So they needed to remember some things. And the first thing they needed to remember and something that I want us as a church family to be reminded of today is that they were being strategically positioned for impact. God wants you in the kingdom of His glory to be strategically positioned to make an impact in our world. In those first two verses, we saw that the leaders were staying in Jerusalem, the certain leaders that we had read about in chapters 9 and 10, their position strategically already, but the rest of the people had to cast lots. One out of ten of them were going to have to stay there and live in Jerusalem. The others would kind of live along the, the outskirts of the city and the other towns and what we might call the suburbs and in the rural areas. It would have been the temptation of all of them to say, well, I've got to get out here where I can get me some farmland. And I know when I'm preaching in Madison County, probably over 90% of you would say, give me that land. Give me, a give me some dirt to call my own. I don't hold too tightly to the things of this world. I've never been one that thought, man, I've got to have a... Uh, a, a big piece of land and, and all of that. That's just, just not me. I'm like, I can't take it with me when I go anyway, so I want to hold on to his, uh, my wife says, yeah, you want to hold on to too little sometimes. But anyway, that's, uh, some of you are, are geared more like me. It's like, man, if you just give me a, a place to sleep and, and eat, then I'm good to go. But somebody had to live in the city. Somebody had to live in the suburbs, and others had to live we're told in chapter 11 and verse 25, there had to be some farmers. <laughs> Somebody's got to do that. Somebody had to be strategically positioned in the agricultural areas. And so all of that was important. They were being strategically positioned so that they would have an impact in the days ahead. Their journey, their, their ministry was just beginning. And so the rest of the chapter gives us a summary. We won't read all of it, but there are different tribes with different strengths 
and they're dispersed into different areas and they're giving different responsibilities. You can even see that in a church family when we network our strengths and our gifts and our passions and we all take different ministry responsibilities. And even doing that, we're being strategically positioned throughout the kingdom, strategically positioned to use our influence, to use our gifts and our passions to make a difference. But also, in, in geographically speaking, wherever God places you, as his disciple, you've been placed there wherever you find yourself throughout the week. And when I prepare a message, I'll just let you know, I try to put my heart and my mind in your shoes as much as possible. When I'm able to kind of visit where you work or go to school or things like that, that helps me mentally to kind of empathize with where you're at. But you need to be thinking, where will I be this week? Because when I'm there, I am strategically positioned to make a difference for the glory of God. That's why you're there. Oh, I know you've got a job, and you've got a job description, you've got a responsibility. But you've got an even bigger job description from heaven, that God has strategically placed you where he's placed you. You're like, I, I want to do church today, but Pastor Rob, you don't know where I work. You don't know the people I work with, and you don't know where I go to school, and the people I sit next to in the classroom. I, I don't really want to talk about Jesus and ministry in that setting. That is why you're there. You're there because God has strategically positioned us to make an impact. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, when he says, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and to be trampled on by men. He says, you are the light of the world. And then he says this, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Ask yourself, when I'm at school this week, when I'm at work this week, where I live in my community, in all of those places God has strategically positioned me, am I being salt and light? Am I causing others who see me to want to glorify God? And so we need to constantly be saying, how has God positioned us? Positioning is kind of important. I was... um picking on Toby a while ago. I was texting him last night because of uh, the hurricane and, and trying to think through what all was there. And I thought, man, Greenleaf Nurseries, who he represents, is kind of headquartered there in the nurseries. I'm asking him about all of that. And I knew he would have an answer because not only is he a weatherman and keeps an eye on that sort of thing, but, but he thinks about uh, where everything is and, and positioning. And if you've ever heard him talk about his work and he knows where the trucks are and he knows where uh, what's on those trucks and where his stores are and where the things that are on the trucks are going to those uh, different stores and all that. He's just got a mind for all that. And if any kid has ever played football for him, they probably, yeah, that mind never turns off. He's like strategically positioning people, you know, and uh, even if they don't execute, right, Toby? He's like, <laughs> but we strategically positioning. Do you think if in our humanity we believe that's important in our work and in our play, how much more God has strategically positioned you. He knows where the storms are. He knows what's coming against you. He knows what's going around you and going on around you, but he has placed you there. Young people, he has placed you where you are in your family, in your school, adults in your workplace, families in your community, Trinity Baptist Church in the center of Madison County, he has strategically positioned us to bring glory to Him. And I want to be that 
pastor, I want to be that believer, that disciple, that Christ follower who leaves the world different than I found it. I want to make a difference. I don't want to just grumble and complain about what's going on in the world. I want my light to shine. So do people see that difference in your life? Do they see that you're, you, you take it very seriously. God has positioned me here. I'm here to make a difference. That person that is also positioned near you that brings those storms into your life, if you ever thought for a moment, when you're praying, God, why in the world did they have to be in that class with me? God, why in the world did they have to get a job where I have a job? Why in the world, listen, always remember, God has you there for them. And as a church, I know we like to talk about, as a church family, I like this or I like this. I hope the church meets this need or meets that need in my life. God did not place us here primarily for us. He placed us here for his glory and that we might reach out to those who aren't here. The church exists for the glory of God, but we also exist for those who aren't here yet. And so we need to be asking, how can we be salt and light in our community and in our world? That's done with our lifestyle. That's the salt, how we live. That's also done with our verbal witness, the gospel, telling people, how they can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, our witness, our walk and our witness being constantly enhanced as we seek to glorify God and live being strategically positioned for impact. Secondly, I want you to know that they were also, and I think Jeff will appreciate this point, they were spiritually prepared for worship. We need to be spiritually prepared for worship. And see, it wasn't kind of like everybody kind of go your own way. They called them back together. Here's this time of, uh, of dedication, the walls in place, and we need to come together. There, were, there would be all the festivals that would kind of line up with the Old Covenant. We notice in the New Testament, on the first day of the week, the church starts gathering together corporately again and again. Uh, in the Old Testament, Sabbath would be a, a day of worship and a day of rest. In the New Testament, under the New Covenant, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, they would gather together on a regular basis to worship. This worship service, though, had to do everything to do with the dedication of the wall. If you'll look down in verse 27, and we'll just kind of read through verse 46, and I want to go back and then comment on all of the things that we kind of observe in the text. It says that at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sent for the Levites, these people of the Levitical tribe, the priestly tribe, where they had lived, and they brought them to Jerusalem to celebrate the joyous dedication Notice it was a joyous celebration. Sometimes when you look at the faces of some people in worship, you would think the last thing that's on their mind is that this is a joyous celebration. But it says this was with thanksgiving and singing. It was accompanied by cymbals and harps and lyres. The the singers gathered from the region around Jerusalem and from the villages. Now they're coming in from the suburbs, right, of the Nedophathites from Beth Gilgal, from the fields of Jeba, from Asmaveth. You can correct my pronunciation on these later. For they had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. Suburbs were growing, right? After the priests and Levites had purified themselves, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. There's a time of consecration here, a time of setting apart, time of prioritizing. And then I brought the leaders of Judah upon the top of the wall. Now, this is quite interesting here. Uh, It became very visible, this celebration, very visible. And I anointed, or I'm sorry, I appointed two large processions 
that gave thanks. One went to the right on the wall toward the dung gate. Hashiah and half of the leaders of Judah followed, Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah. Some of the priests' sons had trumpets. That sounds exciting, right? Maybe we need more. If you're a trumpeter, let Jeff know. We incorporate that into worship. Zechariah, son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachar, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Ezrael, Melilah, Gelilah. <laughs> Again, you can correct my pronunciation later. Easy for me to say, right? May I, Nethanel, Judah, Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. We looked at Psalm 50 not long ago. We see everything that has breath. If you can make music with it, use it to make music for the glory of God. And it says, Ezra the scribe went in front of them. That's a key picture there, the man of God with the word of God that goes before them. At the fountain gate, they climbed the steps of the city of David on the ascent of the wall and went above the house of David to the water gate. That's on the, the, the Bethlehem side there, but to the water gate to the east. The second Thanksgiving procession went to the left and followed it. So here you see these two worship processions, these two giant choirs making their way around the wall. It says, past the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall above the gate of Ephraim, by the old gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate. They stopped at the gate of the guard. The two Thanksgiving processions stood in the house of God where they had come all the way around and met. And he says, so did I and half of the officials accompanying me as well as the priests. And there's all those names again, right? And now they've got the trumpets, and it's, it's kind of building up to a crescendo. It's getting more and more exciting, and you're like, man, I don't play any of those instruments whatsoever. Look at verse 42, halfway down in the verse, it says, Then the singers sang with Jezrahiah as the leader, and on that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Remember what? And in Nehemiah chapter 8, when they were broken and weeping, they were told to get up, kind of dust themselves off, because what? The joy of the Lord was their strength. It says the women and the children also celebrated, and Jerusalem's rejoicing was heard far away. People all over could hear this celebration that was going on. What do we see in this picture what do we see in these verses that we just read? We see, first of all, people. <laughs> Everybody got involved. Worship is not a spectator sport. Worship is not something you come to watch. It is something that you come to participate in. It involved all the people as a couple of giant choirs made their way around. Everybody is involved with either instrumentation or singing or playing some role, some part in this drama. And so let's get away from the idea that worship is something that happens on a platform and, and, and that you're an audience. You are not an audience. There is one audience when we come together to worship. That one audience is God himself, and we are the participants 
And our performance, and I'm not talking about performance in, in faking it, I'm talking about your activity in worship is to please an audience of one, the Lord God himself. And so it's not a spectator sport. It's not private at this point. It is corporate. Now, you should have a private worship life. You should have time alone with God every day, perhaps morning and evening, and in those moments during the day where you're like, man, I better find me five minutes with Jesus or I'm not going to make it through the day, or I better find some time alone with God because the people who work with me or go to school with me aren't going to be able to put up with me if I don't get along with God. We have to have time alone with God. Corporate worship is designed, and in Scripture, the coming together in the Old Testament for occasions like this dedication, the festivals, Sabbath worship, corporate worship in the New Testament, the church coming together is so that we can do corporate worship, so that we can worship together. And in so many places today, worship is being designed as so as not to offend anyone whatsoever. We're doing all that we can to make it easy, and now the, the experts tell us, make it where they can't see the people around them so they can uh, feel alone with God and worship. The only problem with that is when we gather together, this is not our alone time for worship. This is family time where we're supposed to see each other and celebrate. Your focus is not supposed to just be on this stage. It's supposed to be on the body that's with you as we all turn our focus to, toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And so corporate worship was designed to be corporate worship. It involved people, people participating. People had been des designated to be in, in particular locations doing certain things. Again, it's not what's happening on a, on a platform. Can you imagine, you know, next Saturday football season kicks off here in Athens. And Appalachian State comes out, right? Big trap game. Appalachian State comes to Athens. Can you imagine all the cheerleaders running out? And at that point where they usually get this side to yell, Georgia. And then they come over here, this side, Bulldogs in the stadium. Georgia, Bulldogs. And can you imagine like the, the, the dude with the microphone, the head cheerleader, whatever you want to call him. He, he gets out there and he says, okay, we just do this in your heart. Just, hey, you, you are a sincere Bulldog fan. Just cheer on the dogs in your heart tonight. Cheer on, your, cheer on the dogs. You say, man, that's crazy. The coach is going to be like, we need some noise. But yet we come into worship, and the same ones who will paint their bodies red and black on Saturday and turn cartwheels for the dogs on the Lord's Day, well, I worship God in my heart. And listen, I'm one of your biggest defenders because I know what's happening. People are worshiping God in their heart. But in this occasion, the corporate worship was so they would worship corporately, so that the people of God would participate. And by the, you know, baptism, a public profession, it's to be visible for the family of God to see and to celebrate. What a beautiful thing. That's why we don't say, if you want to be baptized, um, Fill your tub. We're going to come house to house and baptize. Now, if there is a, uh, a physical reason that somebody would need that, then we would gather some believers together and celebrate that. We, I'd do it in a bathtub if we had to. But, but it's designed to be a corporate celebration involving the family of God. And so there's the people. There's the pageantry. All this movement, it was symbolism. It wasn't a show. It was pageantry. Now, the problem 
when we use that word show, I don't want to put them on a show, if we don't forget, if we're not careful, we will take all the pageantry out of worship. And by pageantry, I mean things that get our attention and make us say, man, God is so big, he's worth doing that. He's worth that effort, and it's exciting, and it's powerful. And when we plan a wedding, we go all out to say, there's going to be some pageantry, man. There's going to be some marching. There's going to, it's going to be beautiful. Sometimes we don't put that into every time we gather on the Lord's day. Listen, it, it, it's not the form, it's the focus. The, the format is always changing. The pageantry is always changing. The focus is always Jesus. And then there was praise. We saw again and again that they were praising the Lord, and it was out of joyful hearts. They were pointing people to God's goodness, God's faithfulness to his people. And that same praise is turned in the New Testament. We don't see or read anything in the New Testament about the instrumentation and the pageantry and all that being done away with. The New Testament doesn't address that so much as it addresses the fact that now our focus has been made more clear and that it's the Lord Jesus Christ himself who is to be the one who is the center of our worship, the center of all our praise, the one that is worthy and so it changes that focus. It drives away the enemy. It defeats depression in your life when you begin to worship with a focus on Jesus Christ because your focus leaves me and your focus is on Christ and the mission that he's called you to. And so it drives away depression in your life and it creates an awareness of God's presence. Now, I know the theologians will say, they'll come along, and I know that Jeff's heard this before, Pastors will say this to worship leaders. We don't usher in the presence of God. Who would we think we are to usher in the presence of God? Why, God is omnipresent, and God is sovereign, and God is here, and we have no power to usher in his presence. But what you do see in the Scripture is we can certainly make people aware of his presence as as genuine worshipers not putting on a show but seeking to glorify god even those who stand on this stage and usher us into worship and facilitate that worship and all of us begin to praise and you're out there in the congregation as a worship leader you don't believe that i remember an individual years ago who would stand in worship like this right here arms folded with a scowl on his face and it quenched worshipers within a five-mile radius. I mean, it's just like you're a worship leader wherever you are. And, and so you don't have the power to usher in the presence of God, but you certainly have the power to make people aware of God's presence. And so we usher in an awareness of God's presence when we are worshiping in, in sincerity, and we're worshiping in truth, we're worshiping with passion, we're putting our hands together, our lifting hands. You're like, I don't have holy hands. Listen, it's by the blood of Jesus that we come boldly into his presence, into that throne room of grace. And so we are seeing here expressive worship and praise. And then finally, Ezra's leading the way to remind us of the importance of proclamation. The, the scribe, the man with the, the, the scroll, the man with the law, the man with the word. And so the word of God has to be proclaimed in that worship context and so here's the cool thing about it we, we use the phrase sometimes worship should be an overflow and it really should 
this past week, our staff had an opportunity with our associational leaders and other pastors in our association, we had an opportunity to sit on kind of a worship round table. And so one of the comments that was made that is so true that you've heard before, worship should be an overflow of what God's already doing in my life. So that when we gather together corporately on the Lord's day, it's overflowing because of God's goodness and faithfulness to me, what he's already been doing. But here's another cool thing that we don't always mention. Next week often becomes an overflow of that encounter on Sunday morning. And so I want to worship out of the overflow so that in that encounter with God, he may continue to do something in my life and fill me with an understanding of his goodness and his faithfulness and a vision for where he's at work so that when I leave here, I continue to minister in the overflow of what God's doing. That's why I love Wednesday nights here. We often, in the middle of the week, need something to refuel and refresh us so that we're continuing to overflow. I remember when I was a teenager, man, by Wednesday, school, ball practice, whatever else was going on, I felt spiritually drained by midweek. So thank God there are places where you still go to a midweek service and be refueled and and, and refresh, and, I, and if I understand correctly, this past Wednesday night in the youth meeting, Pastor Ben opened the Word of God, and based on what some of our young people had heard in Nehemiah chapter 8, as soon as he opened the Word of God upstairs, without being prompted, they just stood up in the youth meeting in honor of the reading of God's Word. I thought, man, that's pretty cool. They got it. Somebody listened, right? That's great. They were, they were spiritually prepared. And finally, and, and this perhaps is the most difficult this perhaps is where somebody this morning is going to, instead of say amen, say, oh me. This is where it gets a little tough. They were to be socially purified for effectiveness. If they were not living socially pure lives, spiritual deals with our relationship with God. Social, it is a spiritual life still, but socially. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, he grew spiritually, he grew socially. We're to be socially purified for effectiveness. Social referring to the relationships with those outside of the faith, witnessing, making a connection. Listen, we have fellowship with other believers. We have a relationship with unbelievers, but it's not fellowship. And in, in chapter 13, when you thought, okay, they've been strategically positioned Everything's going to be great. Now they're prepared for worship. Man, these folks are on fire for Jesus. But your passion for God and your fire for Jesus Christ is not based on what you do in the house of worship on Sunday morning, but how you live your life Monday through Saturday when you leave this place. Are you still on mission? Somebody says, man, that church is on fire for God, but the people when they leave don't consecrate themselves and live differently than the rest of the world, then they're not being socially purified, and as a result, they will be ineffective. They don't care what you did in your huddle. They wanted to see how you played the game. And so in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13, we see that they continued to learn the word of God and make adjustments. He says that time the book of Moses was read publicly to the people. The command was found, written in it, that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the Israelites with food 
water and water instead they hired Balaam against them to curse them and our God turned the curse into a blessing when they heard the law see they had this uh, they were not being separated from those who were standing against everything they were trying to do and so they were tolerating things in the very presence of God that the word of God had said you're not going to put up with that from this day forward in verses four through nine you see that God's people were not to be a a social club who compromise. Here's Tobiah, just to kind of summarize, because of a kindred relationship, somebody had allowed Tobiah to come in. Remember, he stood against everything they were trying to do, and now they brought somebody who did not have a heart for God or the things of God or the vision of God to occupy a place of prominence and a place of influence. And they were like, sorry, Nehemiah had to explain, Tobiah was not to live in the middle of all this, bringing these problems out. It would be Old Testament church discipline began taking place, if you will. In verse 11, we see that they were neglecting God's house for their personal pursuits. This was a recurring theme. Every time there would be momentum in the house of God, every time there would be momentum in the kingdom, all of a sudden their focus would turn back towards self and their own pursuits rather than the call of God on their life and, and seeing themselves as a people with a mission. And so they had to be socially purified and and it had to be clear that they were on mission wherever they were. In verses 15 through 22, they had to be reminded again that the Sabbath renewal could not be neglected. Don't neglect your spiritual refreshment and restoration, but don't neglect that corporate gathering together. Hebrews 10, 25 says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves as some are in the habit of doing. And so they had to be reminded of of that Sabbath renewal. And then one of the biggest confrontations, you would think, really, this was the people of God, one of the biggest confrontations was with their affairs with with seductive women. (laughs) And and so the the women of the land that brought in and, and tried to lure the men away, they were giving in to all of these affairs and relationships and and uh, being unequally yoked with these foreign women, as it says in the, the Holman Christian standard. But look with me at verses 25 and 26. He says, I rebuked them, cursed them, beat some of their men. Wow. Now I would have to have some help from the deacons if we had to apply the Old Testament standard. Man, what are you doing? You giving in to temptation? We're going to beat you, boy. Um, you, you hanging around strange women? We're going to... Then he says he pulled out some of their hair. <laughs> you see that, you know, the, the church staff, deacons, leadership get together. Men meet here Friday morning at six o'clock for a Bible study. We're gonna have we're gonna have accountability time. Oh, boy, we're gonna pull your hair out. He pull he, he's beating them. He's pulling out their hair, and he says, "I forced them to take an oath before God and said, you must not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters as wives for your sons or yourselves." Didn't King Solomon of Israel sin in matters like this? I'd say. 700 wives, 300 concubines. Solomon sinned big time in this. 
There was not a king like him among the nations, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Yet foreign women drew him into sin. In some translations say strange women. I really love the King James with this word right here. It says outlandish women. What are you doing hanging around those outlandish women? And ladies, you know, we could flip the coin here and say, watch out for those outlandish men who would lead you into corruption and abuse and all kinds of strange things. Not just the ones that would come to you in the workplace and in the community and on the street corners, but today come to you through something called the World Wide Web. It says, get away from them. They have a different set of values. You're to be socially purified. You're still to be salt and light. Remember how Jesus prayed for us? Because uh, I don't want you to leave here and say, well, I guess I've got to isolate myself. I, I, some of the teenage boys here are already planning their excuse to miss school Monday, but mom, some outlandish girls go over there to that school. There's some outlandish dudes, strange women, as Proverbs says. How did Jesus pray for us? In John chapter 17, he's praying, Father, I'm not praying that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them and protect them in the world. And he says, sanctify them, consecrate them, set them apart where they're living different than everybody else around them. And he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And I'll tell you, that's where the world's not seeing a difference. When, when, when people can come to you and say, well, you know, the kids from this youth group or the kids from that youth group or the kids from this church or that church or the kids, uh, all those kids that go to FCA, they live one way when they're gathered together, but man, on Friday, Saturday night, they don't live any different than anybody else. They're involved in the same sins as everybody else. Now, I'm old. I ain't that old. I, I hear those things. I, I know what's going on. You know, it, it, it's people in churches all over this county and all over this land saying, we love the Lord Jesus Christ, let's worship him. We're prepared We're prepared for worship, but we're not socially purified in the way that we're living. You want to know what real worship is? Romans 12, 1 and 2 says that, I urge you, I beg of you, by the mercies of God, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And he says that when we begin being transformed by the renewing of our mind, we begin to understand the will of God. This becomes our reasonable act of worship. Worship is a pure life. James said, keeping yourself pure and unspotted from the world. Here's what happens. We get these first two things in order, and we leave out the third one. All we're doing, listen, I remember. I'm going to ask Jeff to come. I want to close with this story right here. I remember when we went to Israel. Tina and I remember going down to see where they had done excavations there, and we actually saw the stones on which Jesus would have walked, the Via Dolorosa. And in those stones, thousands of years old, known as the way of suffering, the way of the cross, and, and that, where, where that journey would have begun, where Jesus took his cross, where he would go to die for the sins of the world, it was right there 
that you could see a carving, not of a cross or of a sign of the fish, but you know what? It was of a, of a game. It was a carving of a game where they could cast lots, a game that the soldiers played so that they might see who's going to win some of the belongings of those who were being charged and those who were being executed. And remember what they did when Jesus was going to be crucified, they wanted to decide who's going to get his garments, and they, they, were, they, went, they cast lots. But it was a little game that they played there. Years later, I believe it was Luke Garrett who wrote a song, Playing Games at the Foot of the Cross. And see, if, if our worship is passionate, and we're strategically positioned in this world, but we don't keep ourselves socially pure and, and living right and holy and pure relationships then all we're doing with the other things is playing games at the foot of the cross. And, and I fear this morning that some of you, and the Holy Spirit will let you know even now, but some of you, some of the young people here, some of our middle school and some of our high school students, some of our moms and dads, we're playing games at the foot of the cross. We come to worship, we put on a face, we look prepared, but we know we're not in right relationship with those who know and don't know our Lord. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, by your grace, by the power of the cross, with a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit, I pray you would solidify the prayers as well as answering the prayers of those who are asking for new strength to be who you've called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name.